And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, our weekly podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk with Orville Schell, one of this nation's leading experts on China. He's the Arthur Ross Director on the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York City. He's also former dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of numerous articles and books on China, including Imperial China, China's Long March to the 21st Century, the China Reader, Tiananmen Papers, In the People's Republic, and Virtual Tibet, and co-author of Wealth and Power. Recently, well, a year and a half ago, published a novel about China called My Old Home, and obviously we're going to discuss China with him in what I like to call a deep dive, which will include live questions from our audience. But I want to add the fact that he has also been a farmer and published a book on meat called Modern Meat, Antibiotics, Hormones, and the Pharmaceutical Farm, as well as writing a book and publishing a book on former California Governor Jerry Brown. And I wondered if all of the, if those of you who are seeing us on Zoom, all those books behind them, at least a shelf of them are authored by Orville. I want to warmly welcome Orville Schell to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Thanks, Michael. Well, I've been reminding myself lately of the quote alleged to have been Napoleon's, let China sleep for when she wakes, she will shake the world. And a lot of world shaking going on, a whole lot of shaking going on, as Jerry Lee Lewis said. Uh, maybe a new hegemon on the one hand, but also, strangely enough, a peace broker, at least acting at least outwardly like a peace broker with Saudi Arabia and Iran on the one hand, and now trying at least uh, at least ostensibly or in terms of appearance to do something about Russia and Ukraine. How do you read things between those two polarities? Well, I think, you know, China has had a century and a half of struggling to uh, rejuvenate itself from the glory days of the dynastic period. And I think uh, it's been a long slog. I mean, do you remember in the last century, it wasn't so long ago when China was considered the sick man of Asia. So it's regaining of wealth and power and stature, I think, also depends upon its ability to do things like broker uh, uh, big power issues around the world. And we saw one example of that with the Saudi Arabian, uh, uh, Iranian uh, sort of rapprochement that, that they brokered. So I think that this they consider part of the portfolio that is rightfully theirs as a revived great power. And uh, whether they can succeed in doing something in the Ukraine is highly problematic because in a certain sense, it's so clear which side they're on, namely Putin's side. And this does not make for great uh, uh, sort of a, a negotiator uh, of a neutral nature. Well, they were probably surprised, as Putin was, by the resistance that Ukraine has put up and the kind of fight that Ukraine has, uh, in an embattled way, proceeded with. I mean, if, uh, for example, Ukraine had fallen quickly, the logic might have extended to China trying to see to the same thing with Taiwan. But you know, there's a lot of armaments that are going to Ukraine from the West, and there would presumably be the same thing if China were to invade Taiwan? Well, I think... Um they are paying a tremendous amount of attention uh, to Putin's failure to quickly and decisively uh, win the Ukraine and regain it back into the sort of Russian empire. And I think it will have repercussions in their decisions about Taiwan. On the other hand, I think they're not unhappy to see 
Russia sort of bleeding in the Ukraine because it means that they become the senior partner in the Russian Sino-Russian alliance. And also, uh, in a certain sense, uh, the West, NATO and the United States, is committing a tremendous amount of military resources to this conflict, which means the pivot to Asia may be blunted somewhat should they decide to launch some kind of a military action against Taiwan. So there's a lot of complicated things at work here. A lot of things in motion, uh, to put it mildly. But what do you make out of this new alliance, this axis that we see between Russia and China, which seems to involve Iran also? Well, I think it's really important to remember that historically speaking, China and Russia have been up and down and up and down. It's been something of a roller coaster. It isn't as if this is like the, the British and the United States, who since the revolution have basically been on, or the War of 1812, been on the same page. Um, so it is, it's a bit of an opportunistic uh, alliance. And I think the thing, strangely, which really binds Xi Jinping and Putin together, uh, obviously there's some common interests, oil, gas, trade, tech, armaments, things like that. But it's also this deep-seated sense that both leaders and actually both cultures in each country have of being dispossessed of their greatness by the West. I mean, when the Soviet empire collapsed, uh, you know, the West got blamed. And I think China, too, historically speaking, views the West as having dismembered its sort of dynastic greatness. So they both share this deep-rooted psychological sense of being uh, disesteemed, looked down on, uh, uh, and they bear a deep grievance, which I think ties them together. And that means decoupling more with the West, and that means more of a deterioration of relations with the West. I mean, after the surveillance balloon was shot down, uh, Blinken didn't even go to China. So one sees this kind of downward spiral, at least at this point. I think the downward spiral is very alarming. And uh, the Chinese show no interest in setting up guardrails, which is a great uh, uh, sort of trope of, of Blinken and, and the U.S. government now to somehow at least keep the hotlines going so military accidents might uh, be able to be uh, uh, modulated and not turn into bigger conflicts. Um, again, I think th th this is uh, very alarming, but to find a remedy, you need reciprocity. And right now, China and Russia are not willing to reciprocate in a way that could, uh, you know, each side gives a little and gets a little and finds a new balance point. And that's what we're missing. And as we slide further and further down into a state of antagonism and animosity, uh, it, it could be very simple for a kind of a military accident in the South China Sea, the Taiwan Straits, a, a, a plane, we've already had several of those incidents, could turn into something larger. So um, we're in a troubled period. We've also got more of an arms race, which is very unsettling in all of this. I mean, so it would appear. China has now two aircraft carriers uh, groups and is about to have a third. And so one of the, the main sort of armament advantages that the United States had uh, was our 11 aircraft carrier task force groups. Now they become something of a liability because China also has new missiles 
capable of taking aircraft carriers out as far away as Guam or Wake or, or the, the outer island chain. So the whole tableau is changing radically as China beefs up its, its military and claims more and more territory. Remember, they, they claim the entire South China Sea from Hainan Island all the way down to Indonesia. Well, they also that, claim Taiwan. I mean, at this point, uh, it hasn't been as aggressive, perhaps, uh, but it's in, simply in a state of uh, kind of a, uh, a waiting state. I mean, you think about all those uh, microchips and microprocessing that come out of Taiwan, and you think about what happened with Hong Kong, and it's no secret that the Chinese simply want reunification with Taiwan. Yes. And, and here, I mean, microchips, which we forget, are in everything we use in our lives. 92% uh, of the leading edge chips come from Taiwan. Yeah. Now, how did that happen? Uh, how did Intel give up the fabbing of chips that the United States need? How, how did uh, everybody become so interdependent? And China and Taiwan and the United States are all kind of snarled up, as, as is Korea and Japan, in this very complex web of interdependency on the microchip question. And you could say this is kind of a metaphor for the way the whole infatuation with globalization wove the world together. And now that we're separating into two separate ideological and economic blocks, nobody quite knows how to engage in the sort of surgery that would separate us in a way that wouldn't blow the global economy to blazes. So we're trying to figure that out. And, uh, you know, companies are very reluctant. Uh, they're so dependent on China. They're very reluctant to think of plan B because they just don't know what to do. Is that why so, the economist calls Taiwan the most dangerous place in the world? I mean, because there's so much at stake in all this, but also what you've just outlined is the real kind of way things have settled into a battle ideologically between what we think of as democracy on the one hand and autocracy on the other. We are headed into a world where the sort of liberal democratic nations and autocracy are more and more at loggerheads. And yet, uh, and this is why Macron is in uh, China right now, we are connected organically. We have the same sort of internal organs and bloodstream via trade. And as the world separates politically and ideologically, we haven't quite figured out how to separate it economically. And it's a very, uh, uh, it's causing a tremendous amount of consternation amongst big companies who thought globalization was here for eternity. And a good thing, win-win, no problem. Didn't matter if you don't have can't make your own chips. If you can get them from China, cheaper, better, faster. Uh, no one, no one thought another thing about it. So those young people protesting up in Seattle maybe had it right in a visionary, impression way more than we gave credit for at the time, or a lot of people gave credit for at the time. I'm also wondering what you're thinking is on uh, China allying itself with Iran and uh, the sense that Russia is now definitely strongly allied with Iran. Uh, and, I mean, for a while, Saudi Arabia and the kind of uh, loggerheads that Saudi Arabia was at with Iran presented a possibility for kind of having them like in Yemen against one another, and that could be on the global scale as well. But now there seems to be a rapprochement. Yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, we thought we'd vacated this land where ideology mattered. 
Uh, and this is, of course, what Nixon and Kissinger uh, uh, accomplished in 1972 with Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai. Uh, we thought uh, we can, you know, practically work together with countries like like China and other autocracies. Now I think autocracies are fearing more and more uh, the sort of the sanctions of the West and are allying themselves. And we're, we're, the world is slowly kind of like oil and water separating, turning into an autocratic block with China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, maybe Turkey, Hungary, Syria, and then NATO, Europe, Australia, Canada, uh, Japan, even the Philippines now. So th 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 this is a very disturbing uh, sort of uh, uh, phenomenon that completely countermands all the verities and hopefulness of, of, of globalization which was supposed to bring us all together, and trade was supposed to make us less likely to uh, to uh, go to war with each other. Well, you realize how volatile it is when Nancy Pelosi, for example, um, goes to Taiwan and it creates all kind of furor, and now Kevin McCarthy actually, you know, greeting delegates from uh, Taiwan, uh, actually meeting with the president of Taiwan, uh, this has caused, you know, extraordinary consternation uh, in China and anger from China and whiplash, kind of backlash to us. It has, and it we have to be very careful about unnecessary provocation. On the other hand, you have to also acknowledge that if Quebec can vote to leave Canada and Scotland can vote to leave Britain and Czechoslovakia divided in half that the notion of self-determination, a very vaunted United Nations principle, uh, maybe also should be operable in places like the Ukraine and Taiwan. You know, if people don't want to join Russia or China, they should have that option. But of course, in the world of Putin and Xi, that is not acceptable. In the world of Putin and Xi, as you kind of intimated, there's a sense of grievance uh, that goes back to wanting to have things as they used to be with those empires intact. And those empires intact means essentially adversarial role for the West and for the United States particularly. Yes, and I think, you know, both Russia and China, even though uh, they're very different, both are deeply steeped in the Leninist dialogue or narrative about imperialism. Uh, and that means colonialism, that means exploitation, that means victimization, humiliation, all of these words which appear in their narratives. Uh, and they, both countries, both leaders feel that this is the narrative that they were, they were, grew up in. And so there's a, a kind of a very skeptical view of, of intentions of democratic states, particularly the United States. Uh, they view us as a predator. And as I have to also acknowledge, and they're not completely wrong about this, as preferring to see the overthrow of the regimes in each of those countries. They call it peaceful evolution. Now, Chinese do. Now, that sounds pretty good to us. But to Xi Jinping, peaceful evolution means, well, if you, we can't beat you militarily, We'll beat you through soft power. We'll beat you through, you know, all these other kinds of competitions.
And that soft power, I mean, when you think about what China's doing in Africa or Pakistan, uh, it's a different kind of diplomacy. Uh, and it's um, also against the West, really, essentially, isn't it? Yes. And, and uh, you have to acknowledge that China has been somewhat successful. But where they've been successful, as anyone can be, if you offer a lot of money, people will usually put the needle in their arm, right? Then uh, you have to kind of reckon with that, uh, that obligation and that responsibility. It isn't, I think, that people like Chinese uh, culture, Chinese values, Chinese Communist Party's way of doing things. It's that they need, uh, they need funding. And the West is largely absent, uh, whereas the Chinese have been incredibly persistent, tenacious, effective and belt and road all around the world they've, they've offered a tremendous amount of uh, uh, assistance which the west has not been able to match mao is still in their blood though and uh, lenin is still in the russian blood i'm extrapolating from what you said uh, so what is the role for example now of for example you mentioned macron before and and the eu trying to essentially move towards some kind of well work with China to do something about what's going on in Ukraine? Is there any hope there, really? Well, you know, I think Europe is so interesting because they, uh, particularly the Germans, have been so dependent on China, the automobile industry, the chemical industry. But they also have undergone quite a transformation, even Olaf Scholz, uh, to really sort of, I think, understand the reality of what China wants, which is to be uh, a great power, hegemonic, at least in Asia and other places as well, if possible. And they, they, I think they've, they've, they've come a long distance since those days when they just wanted to keep trading and didn't want to have to, you know, cut off Huawei uh, for 5G or, or any of these things. So I think it's worth watching Europe because in Europe, you see a kind of a Petri dish of how attitudes around the world change. And remember, uh, it used to be, I mean, who alienates Canada, Australia, India, Sweden, Norway, the Czech Republic, but China has masterfully succeeded in alienating all those countries in the most sort of grievous way. And you have to ask yourself, why? What's the national interest that has been gained by doing that? And here, I think you do get back to this kind of sense of grievance culture that animates Xi and certainly also animates uh, Putin. But I was reading uh, some of your thoughts, uh, Robert Lifton, famous psychologist and someone whom we both probably admire a great deal, talking about Xi wanting a kind of immortality. I mean, it's almost messianic in a strange way. I mean, I remember when Kim Jong-il uh, died, they were talking about heaven snowing, you know, because heaven was grieving over his loss. There's that same sense with these leaders. They do see themselves as messianic. They do see themselves in a way as being the encapsulation or the epitomization of something that really is godlike. I think that's right. And, um, you know, it's interesting, though, when a country is does feel preyed upon and weakened, uh, it's not so difficult for a leader that aspires to greatness and wealth and power to take the stage and 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 actually win the hearts and minds of the people because there's this yearning to be great again. 
And both Russia and China did have a period of a long period of the, where they imagined themselves as great. And I forgive mean, me, you sound like you could be talking about Trump too, you know, make America great you, again. You very much could. Yeah. And I think Trump is actually strangely very much in this victim culture that she and, and Putin live in. I mean, he does feel belittled. He does feel spurned. And I mean, this is his great appeal that other people in America who feel forgotten, left aside, uh, disesteemed by the elites on the coast, uh, this is his strength. And it, the whole world seems to be now awash in the currency of victimization. And we have a, have a bit of that here too, I think, besides Trump and the left wing. Uh, with wokeism is also a kind of a sense of having been preyed upon and left out. You mentioned wokeism, and that's a word that's probably used promiscuously and maybe incorrectly in a lot of ways, but uh, I think we know what it means. Uh, it's been pretty well defined, in fact. Um, but, I mean, it goes back actually African-Americans using it about their own attitudes and so forth. But here you are kind of a leader in terms of expertise on Asia and so forth. You're a white guy and you're from a waspy background and all that sort of thing. Has that been any kind of impediment for you? I'm just curious. Oh, absolutely. I, I do think that, you know, um, uh, people don't readily want to hear just from people of my ilk uh, who, are, who are viewed as the elite. Uh, and I, I, I understand that. And, and I think the virtue of America is that it's diverse. Um, however, I think, um, you know, we have to be very careful that we, uh, we, we don't fall into sort of the victim culture mode, which I'm very familiar with through China. And I mean, China has built a, one of the most powerful narratives in world history of victimization. You know, the hundred years of humiliation. And the problem with that is you strive for success, but you cannot be successful as long as you're a victim. And so even after China has accomplished amazing things developmentally and otherwise, it still insists that it's being preyed upon and victimized. And there's an absolute contradiction there, which prevents it from, I think, in my view, enjoying its very success. And worse than that, I think it may lead to a kind of a Greek tragedy, where Xi Jinping, if you look at him as sort of a Greek tragic hero through overweening ambition, goes too far, reaches too far, and brings the whole kingdom down around everybody's ears. It could happen. Uh, lots of questions, and let me go to as many as we can and thank ahead of time those of you who are sending questions in. John is our first question from Reno Nevada. He says, it seems the Chinese government is using excess urban development to prop up economic activity via ghost cities. What's your perspective on the long-term viability of this approach? Well, the reason why we have ghost cities is that there it has not been a, a good place for people to put their investment, their extra money, their savings uh, in China because bank interest rates are so low and the stock market is, is young and unpredictable. So they put them in property, in apartments. And the property market has now crashed. So this, this has really just uh, some 30% of the Chinese economy depended on the property market. And what was that? Well, in 1949, the Communist Party confiscated all property in China and nationalized it. Then 
during the reform period, it started selling it back again into the economy. And that meant cities and towns that owned all of the agricultural land could take that land, develop it, and make a profit to support the city government instead of a tax base. That has come a cropper. And the people who've invested in property now find that their savings are grossly diminished by uh, the fall of prices. So it's a real uh, problem uh, for the Chinese economy and for ordinary people. And Kenneth from Seattle says, it seems that the West's rules of international engagement are markedly different from those of the CCP. How does the world play this game when the opposite sides have different rules? Well, you could ask the same question about the Axis and the Allies in World War II, and we know what happened there. You don't play it. You fight. And this is the challenge we are confronting now. Can we find a way to uh, intermediate between these very, very different political systems that are now arming up to the teeth and the, this sort of uh, uh, incipient uh, autocratic alliance that we see coming together. The most recent uh, chapter of that, of course, was when Iran and, and Saudi Arabia came together through the aegis of the Chinese Communist Party and Wang Yi. Uh, so I, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I look at the world right now uh, with a tremendously uh, 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 nervous uh, sort of um, sense that I don't see how we're going to slow, slow this possible uh, breakdown down. Uh, and it takes reciprocity. And if people can't get together and talk, uh, um, we won't find the kind of guardrails we need. And in the case of China, you know, when, when the Pentagon calls up China, they don't even pick up the phone. Here's Eric from Washington, D.C. What is your interpretation of the China-Russia relationship? Do you think it's genuine alliance or simply more one of convenience, meant to distract or irritate the West? I think it's largely a transactional relationship. Uh, and, a, and a marriage of convenience, but it is a marriage of convenience bound together, as I said a little earlier, by a shared sense of deep grievance against the West for myriad reasons, which we've discussed some of. And I think that we have to also look not just at the national interest in terms of economics, in terms of military balance, et cetera, but we have to also look at the psychological worlds that in which Xi Jinping and people like Putin and others, you know, uh, 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 you know, Orban in Hungary and Erwan and 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 there are many others live in, because it seems to me that in big leader cultures. Um, what the big leader wants to do gets acted out in a very large way without any checks and balances. And Xi Jinping is a very, very uh, sort of uh, hidden personality. Uh, and we don't understand the inputs that went into his life. But, you know, he grew up during the Cultural Revolution. He never went abroad. He had seven years rusticating in one of the poorest parts of China. And he learned because his father was being criticized and, and had a, a tremendously difficult life. He learned that if you're going to prevail, you have to play the system. You have to learn how to play it. And he did learn. 
And he's, he's often described as a technocrat, mainly. I mean, is that a fair characterization? I think he is. A, a, th this is where, you know, whether it's Maoism or Marxism, Leninism, once you have a long revolution, some of the attributes of these uh, ideologies sink deep into the uh, bloodstream of a nation. And it's you know, like in their DNA almost, isn't it? Almost in their DNA, yeah. like recessive genes that keep coming back to be re-expressed. And we thought in the late 70s and 80s, when Deng Xiaoping came to power and waved his wand in effect and said, cultural revolution is over, we need to have openness and reform, we thought, all right, that part of history is gone. And now we see with Xi, it's not gone. It no. lives on in men like him who grew up in that era. And that's what they know. That's when they got their toolbox. And we their toolbox is control. Thought things had shifted with Gorbachev and perestroika. I mean, you yes. know, uh, but it's so embedded, as you say, it's almost in their, in their genetic makeup. Uh, I'm just wondering, since you talk about Xi's childhood, there's a lot that's been made out of Putin's childhood, you know. He always had to win fights, and he did whatever he could to win those fights. I mean, we get into the psychological notion of why dictators and why uh, these rulers, or whatever you want to call them, they're almost like emperors, why they behave the way they do, going back to their childhood. Uh, but it's valuable in many ways, because it is insightful. It does tell us things that we didn't think we knew. It is. But you know, Michael, we know so little about their childhoods. Uh, I read an article yesterday uh, that was published in a Danish newspaper in 2000, uh, translated from Chinese. It's the only interview we have uh, with Xi Jinping about his childhood. And it's utterly fascinating, because what you begin to see is, you know, as a young man, when his father was being pilloried, many of the things that young uh, children of, of parents who were considered to be in the eight black categories and sent down or imprisoned was that the kids ended up, of course they loved their parents in some way, but they also hated them because the parents brought disgrace. And you know, young kids uh, want to be in the group. And Xi Jinping describes in this wonderful interview that was in Politiken in, in, in Denmark that he applied nine times as a teenager to get into the uh, uh, Youth League, which is the precursor of the Chinese Communist Party. And each time he was turned down because of his father's uh, being a counter-revolutionary, which he wasn't really. And so you see that that kind of experience, those are the formative years of any human being. And to understand a little bit more about that, I think help expo helps explain Xi Jinping's incredible sensitivity and how easily he takes umbrage against any slur from the West or the outside world, uh, because he grew up uh, being feeling slurred by his father's class background. And who and would have imagined overcame. in his childhood that he would be the head of the party that kept his father excluded, his father kept him out? We've got a question from Bill in Philadelphia. Thank you, Bill, for this. How does China's population growth or lack thereof affect its long-term economic future? China's demographics do not look favorable. Uh, they have a similar problem to Japan. Two things. Nobody wants to have kids now, so the birth rate has plummeted. 
And second, unlike our great nation, uh, they don't have immigration. So they can't be re-irrigated at the bottom reaches of the demographic uh, uh, table with young, eager, hardworking immigrants. And if you look around America, I mean, anybody building a building, doing yard work, uh, doing the hard labor of keeping this country going, whether it's in hospitals, care homes, or you know, people just cleaning houses, it's immigrants. China doesn't have that. And this means that they are, have a demographic that's aging and no way to pay for these people. Well, it's an interesting question on top of that from Kenneth, uh, who wants to know, is China still considered a developing nation by the WTO? Well, I mean, China has a lot of very poor areas, but, you know, their development story is pretty spectacular. And you have to, you have to hand it to the Chinese Communist Party. They have accomplished a, a true historical miracle of sorts. So uh, it's a contradiction of an amazing accomplishment and still enormous poverty and backwardness. But the tragedy of it, of it is that one might have thought that having succeeded in, 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 in accomplishing the unthinkable, really, which was to make China great power again, that they would want to enjoy that status. But instead, Xi Jinping has gone out and antagonized the world in so many ways. He's also been successful in many other ways. Um, and it prevents the country from actually basking in its extraordinary accomplishments. And I think this is what makes it a very complicated tableau and, and, and also threatens China with a possibly somewhat tragic ending. But there still is, as you suggest, terrible poverty as once you get out of the urban areas in China. Once you get out, particularly in remote areas, uh, I mean, it's it's indigence, it's penury. It is. And yet that should not take away from what they have accomplished, which is extraordinary. Question from Jay, uh, excuse me, from John. Uh, much of China's growth has been predicated on the fact that labor is significantly less expensive. As China continues to grow, it's unlikely to maintain a sustainable labor advantage. Where do you see China's long-term role in the world economy? Well, I think you just answered that in a sense, didn't you, uh, a few moments ago when you said they don't have the labor supply like of immigrants that we have. They don't simply have the ability to continue to grow through labor. It's not there, although well, they're exploiting people from other nations. I mean, that's part of what their global reach is doing. They're bringing people in. And a lot of North Koreans are working in China, for example. Uh, well, this labor. is true, and also— yeah. What they're doing, Michael, is they're exporting all of the surplus commodities like steel, concrete, copper, through the Belt and Road projects to uh, other third world countries. And they're taking their, their, their engineers off there because uh, the, the, the economy is sort of, uh, there's only so much infrastructure you can build within China itself. So China is now reaching out in ways to sustain its economy by exporting its goods through the Belt and Road. And uh, again, this is a very well-organized and funded operation, uh, the likes of which the, the West cannot, cannot meet, cannot compete with. Well, a lot of questions. I want to get to as many of your questions as I can, but I also want to ask you about Tibet, which we haven't even broached yet. And uh, I was just reading a review you did of a book that's out there about how 
Hollywood is trying to appease China. It was a fascinating review. I have to read the book now, but you know, the even down to Tom Cruise in uh, in his movie not having a Taiwanese flag on his on his jacket, not having a Japanese flag either, taking them off. A lot of these examples of fearfulness of the Chinese market, but also not wanting to anger China, I guess, uh, coupled together. What do you see in, in all this in terms of uh, the role of the United States? Uh, I mean, particularly where China is concerned. If the United States is wanting to be, on the one hand, combative toward China, and certainly we hear a lot of that in the rhetoric coming out of our legislature. Um, on the other hand, I mean, Trump's whole campaign initially was strong rhetoric against China. But on the other hand, have to get along with China. Remember what Kissinger was able to do. You know, we have to have relations with China. It's a global economy, all of that sort of thing. It's very tough waters to navigate here. And I'm not just talking about the waters of the South China Sea. I'm talking right. about the global waters. What makes Hollywood so interesting is it is the perfect sort of study, if you're doing a Harvard Business School study, of how engagement which started with Kissinger and Nixon in 72 and went through nine presidential administrations, all supporting China. The presumption was if you engage them through trade, education, culture, whatever, uh, they might you might slowly bend the Leninist metal a little, and you might make China less uh, sort of isolated from and antagonistic to the global economy. Now, the interesting thing about Hollywood is that they sort of rushed into China uh, to partially to sort of help, but also they saw a huge market. And, and initially, China welcomed them. And there was a lot of money spent and a lot of hope. And then China began to say, well, okay, now we can do this for ourselves. We don't need Hollywood. And they started restraining, constricting, and controlling what Hollywood did. And forced people like Disney and other big film companies to come to heel, not only in the films that they could show in China, but the films they showed around the world, the price of being in China was, okay, don't put this in, don't put that in. And so China started dictating to Hollywood what to do in its films all around the world, or they would be cut off from the China market. Yeah. And this is a kind of an interesting model because it is the experience of many other companies. Elon Musk, for instance, you know, come on down, Elon, you got a good EV car, let's, let's have it in China. Until when? Until China develops its own EV uh, uh, industry, which it now has, and now begins problems for Tesla. So China uses things like Hollywood while it serves its purpose. And Hollywood thinks, oh, this is fantastic. We've got friends. They love us. We're good, good to go here for eternity. And then they learn. And bigger that. markets, uh, I mean, which is all really what Hollywood is all about. But I asked, started off asking about Tibet, and I wanted to find out your thoughts on China sees that as part of their reunification. I mean, they're going to be moved on Tibet too, aren't they eventually, or maybe even sooner than we might think? Yes, I mean, Tibet is is a is a kind of a, 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 a an example of how important the notion of restoring China's to a state of greatness namely to the old Qing empire, which included Tibet, Xinjiang and the Muslim areas, Mongolia, the Mongol areas, Manchuria and the Man Manchu areas, all into the notion of its new communist imperium. Now, interestingly, 
the dynasty before the Qing dynasty, the Ming, had none of this. It was just central China. So the, the, and, and the communists were not alone in this. Chiang Kai-shek also wanted to restore China to its Qing imperial boundaries. So it's a very grand dream they have. And it involves, as you know, Hong Kong, Macau, and uh, it involves Taiwan. And there's another giant piece of the geographic puzzle, which is yet to fall. And that is an area which is enormous right next to Burma, Myanmar, called Arunachal Pradesh, yeah. which China claims is, as this is in the Northwest Territories, is part of Tibet. I mean, this is bigger than Bangladesh. So it is not exactly modest in its um, uh, the scope of its pretension to restore itself to a state of geographical greatness that it once had. And this is why South China Sea comes in. And we'll come in with another uh, of our listeners. Uh, this is Reed who wants to know the likelihood of China taking a leading role in combating climate change. Well, I mean, this is the great dream, isn't it? And if there ever was a common interest, wouldn't this be it? It's like Martians landing, right? Everybody has a stake in repelling a, an alien invasion from another planet. In this case, it's climate change. And yet, we've been very unsuccessful. Poor John Kerry has sort of just disappeared off the screen. Why? Because by and large, China holds issues like climate change and pandemics, things like that, hostage to other issues. You won't play with us in Taiwan. We won't fully play with you on climate change. And this is a real, real problem. More questions. Robert from Los Angeles. What needs to change to have U.S.-China relations head in a positive direction? You mentioned reciprocity a number of times. I guess we're back there. But what else comes to your mind? You know, I think, Michael, and this is simply my view, having been spent so many decades uh, puzzling through the China question, that until the system of China changes and recognizes the, the absolute need in diplomacy for reciprocity, I don't think we're going to get very far. It cannot be our way or the highway. You cannot solve the Taiwan problem if China just says it's ours, get off my ranch. And that basically is the attitude that Xi Jinping takes. And I think his attitude is born of a sense of insecurity because to negotiate and to, to concede anything, a compromise, is for him, I think, a sign of weakness. Another question coming us from the nation's capital. Eric asks, do you expect the next generation of Chinese leaders to carry on with Xi's policies as strongly as he has? Or will the desire for national justice and rejuvenation decrease as the old guard retires? I would answer that question this way, that within China, as within every nation, there are very opposite and competing forces. And there is actually a liberal tradition uh, and, you know, the professional classes would embody this more than maybe some others. But it is utterly suppressed right now. So we see one side of a, of a series of kind of uh, incipient forces that, that are uh, lying, uh, slumbering beneath the surface. And we have to recognize that the other side is still there. And someday 
may re-express itself. Because China is one of the least resolved societies of consequence on the earth today. So I think it's not without hope. Uh, we saw what happened in the 1980s, one of the most extraordinarily open and interesting and hopeful periods of Chinese modern history. It ended in 1989, and yet it came back again in the 90s with Jiang Zemin. And I went on the Clinton trip in 19, what was it, 99. It was very, very interesting to see those two leaders. They, they liked each other. They engaged each other. They enjoyed each other. That's gone. And until something like that can come back, uh, I think we're not going to make progress. But that does not mean that within Chinese society, there aren't these incipient forces that will in some time re-express themselves. Well, like you said, a Martian invasion maybe will bring us all together or something along those well, lines. Well, I would have thought climate change was that, but it, it isn't. Uh, Joseph wants to know, what are the underpinnings of China's focus on Africa? I mean, I think here you do get uh, this, one of the great, sort of uh, aspirations of China through its period of weakness all through the 20th century was to, for China to become of global consequence again. So the Belt and Road Initiative that Xi Jinping announced when he came into power in 2012 and 13 was very ambitious. It was a global way for China to expand its influence and to expand its uh, uh, economic imperium. And Africa was a big piece of that. And Africa was very neglected in any organized way by Western uh, countries. So they made quite a few inroads, and then they discovered that Africa had a lot of interesting uh, you know, raw materials like lithium, cobalt, various other things uh, that China needed. And so they've occupied some of these markets quite nicely. Uh, they've done a good job. Uh, where it'll all end, if it's a debt trap, or you know, we see things in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and that don't look very hopeful. But you have to admire their organization, their planning, their tenacity, and they're willing to put up. And their entrepreneurial skill and their ability to really navigate uh, in areas that totally unfamiliar to them. I mean, culturally, and in so many ways that we could cite. It's pretty stunning what they've accomplished in Africa, and I would also say in, in Latin America. Now, not all, not all these projects are functional. Look at Venezuela. It's a great big sinkhole. But uh, still, whether successful or not, they have not been asleep at the wheel. you have any thoughts about TikTok? I mean, it's privately owned, but it's really owned by the Chinese and... There are a lot, there's a lot of fear and a lot of paranoia about their invading the minds of our young people and kind of <laughs> taking us over and all that sort of thing. I mean, you're, you're chuckling, but, you know, you, you see some of these reels and you think, well, what the hell's going on here? What are, they, are they polluting our, our minds? Uh, maybe no more than other social media, but some of it's pretty grim when you uh, well, factor it in. I guess the first thing to be said, Michael, is there is no private company in China. Even private companies aren't private. Now they've been selling, have forced to sell gold and shares to the party. Uh, there's party uh, committees in all the private companies. Jack Ma has been defenestrated. A lot of these big guys have been marginalized. Why? Because a company that's 
got such wealth and such power, even if it doesn't tangle in politics, is has an incipient power that at the wrong time, if the worm turns, could become politically significant. So well, they're they, getting they, so they, much data from from TikTok. I mean, the Chinese government is getting so much data. Well, that's aren't they? the other thing. Uh, I, I, when I say there's no private co company, uh, what I mean to say is if the party wants the data, they get the data. Yeah. Now, is it good for our kids? Probably not. But that in a free society isn't the major consideration of whether someone can make money. But I, I do think we have to be extremely careful about any company that, that has, uh, you know, that Chinese connections, because it is answerable to the party. The national security law says it explicitly. When the party calls, you answer, or they'll pull the rug out from under you and you won't exist anymore. And the party, I think, as you have said in some things that you've written, always needs an enemy. <laughs> they, they well, need... this, this is, yeah, this is Mao Zedong. This is vintage Mao Zedong. It, it's struggle. That's what Marx is all about, struggling classes. And Lenin was all about struggling countries fighting each other, the imperialists, the colonialists, and the, and the poor, hapless people who get imperialized and colonialized. It's, it's a, a narrative of us against them, of antagonistic contradictions. And Mao Zedong said there are two kinds of contradictions. One, among the people we can talk about and work it out. The other is antagonistic. Can't work it out, you struggle, you fight, you die. And that is what I think we see shaping up now in, in the Chinese sort of psyche is the notion that the East and the West are morphing into what Mao Zedong would have called an antagonistic contradiction that cannot be solved by negotiation. Haven't they looked a bit more at their history, though, and all the rather not only the terror that was wrought by Mao Zedong, but also the deaths that resulted from the kind of policies that he brought into place? I mean, particularly with famine and the like. Uh, aren't the Chinese looking at their own history more? I had a really interesting conversation with some Chinese friends last night, and they said two things to remember about China. One, there's an expression in Chinese, chiku, which means to eat bitterness. And they said China's really able to eat bitterness and just take it. There's a very high threshold. The other thing that you hear again and again in China when you raise the Great Leap Forward, the 30, 40 million people who died, the Cultural Revolution, the anti-rightist movement, they say, don't talk about it. Let it go. So, yes, we have a Freudian perspective that says you must deal with the past or it will come back to haunt you and lay you low. Uh, China's sort of cultural response to hardship is um, don't think about it. But so uh, isn't Confucianism still in their bloodstream too? I mean, when we talk about the past, thousands yeah. of years of that. I mean, Confucius, it's really interesting to reread Confucius. I mean, he was a, had a moral core to him. And his 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 sort of uh, uh, scheme of things, but there was another tradition in classical Chinese philosophy, uh, which has bearing on the present, and that was called legalism. And legalism was very transactional. It wasn't law to promote justice. 
It was law to control the people. And those two different elements sort of danced a strange quadrille down through history where Confucianism was used as sort of the front piece, but the imperial system of, uh, of, 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 of imperial rule was very much from the legalist tradition. So those two things came down, and I think the legalist part of things dovetailed very nicely with Leninism. And I read so, something you were writing about how the, the focus has been on control now with Xi. I think that's, the, you know, every human being has a toolbox that when you confront a problem, you say, all right, how am I going to fix this? And I think, as I suggested a little bit earlier, that Xi Jinping's toolbox was formed during the Cultural Revolution. And what he has in his toolbox if, are things like manipulation, control, ideological purification of people's minds, all of these things which were the answers that the Maoist revolution, uh, uh, you know, uh, had in its toolbox. So he's not a complete Maoist, but he, that's his learning experience. That's his fund of, of knowledge about how life works and how you respond to problems. So if they're putting the past behind them, such things as the Cultural Revolution, they're not necessarily putting Mao's Red Book behind them. I mean, is that still scripture in a different way, the way it's been by osmosis or something? They don't talk about uh, Mao Zedong's Red Book anymore, and they don't talk about the Cultural Revolution, but deeply embedded in almost everything Xi Jinping says, his Xi Jinping thought for the new era, are many Maoist notions, and they still officially and publicly defend Marxist-Leninist doctrine, and that Mao Zedong is a, great, is a great avatar, the Chinese sort of avatar of, of that whole world, which Xi Jinping was born in and still promotes. This may be a final question from Jeff in the Indiana Dunes. Uh, I'm not even sure what that is, but he says, when I think of China, I see 50 ways for it to go all wrong. Thinking about Paul Simon's song, you know, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Can we make this relationship work with China? Well, you've been kind of intimating that we can, and clearly we should. Maybe first steps, what would, what would those be? You know, there are many, many, many problems in the Chinese proposition, whether they're economic, political, uh, foreign policy. But we shouldn't jump too readily to a conclusion that it's going to— collapse anytime soon. It has amazing resilience and strength despite all these problems. Can we reconcile with it some way, find some different way to work? Well, that was what Kissinger and Nixon managed to do, but they had the common enemy of the Soviet Union. And that's what Macron is trying to do right now in China, is to say, Xi Jinping, you know, let's us gang up together against Russia. I don't think he's got a snowball's chance in hell of succeeding. Well, what levers does he have? I mean, for starters, really, with trade, you know, some and economic, some perhaps, but you know, real leverage. I'm talking about like. Well, China does care about the European market. It's it's the biggest market for collectively for for China. But I I, I don't think we're going to see uh, for the reasons we've discussed. Xi Jinping saying, oh, yeah, the scales have fallen from my eyes. Putin is, is a dangerous man. L let me hug it out with Macron. 
and and let me become a better human being and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. That, that's not going to happen she is she and we have to understand him much better than we have but he's a very opaque person it's very difficult to come to terms with actually what he is as a human being but we can read his speeches and his 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 utterances and it's all right there but generally speaking we find it so turgid we don't read it and when we do read it we think oh he's just saying that cuz he has to well as a casual observer of such things as uh what go on in geopolitics uh it seemed to me that it was almost a love fest between putin and xi the time uh, that he spent well, there i think this is a shared sense of grievance they are brothers in in grievance and we are the subject of that grief what will be done about that i guess is what remains up in the air and to be seen indeed always great to talk to you thank you so much for your time and uh great pleasure michael orville shell and i want to thank everybody who heard this episode live and thanks to all who will be hearing it in the future if you haven't already done so please take advantage of the invitation we extend to you to join our growing gray matter with michael krasny podcast community by simply signing up and becoming a member. All you have to do is go to graymatter.show. And my thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Malachi. Special thanks to our esteemed guest, Orville Schell. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.